0: Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker. That stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast. Together as a Live Inspired community, we can change the world. And now, let's get started with today's episode.
1: Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary.
0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast. With John O'Leary. Always thrilled to have you on board for these episodes. So I have a question for you on the front of this one. How many of you, by a show of hands, like meetings? I don't see any hands up. I'll ask it again. How many of you, by a show of hands, enjoy meetings? Whether those meetings are in the boardroom, sales functions throughout your day, up at school, church, synagogue, For the most part, most of us run away from meetings or go painfully, slowly, heads drooped into them. Well, our guest today reminds us that meetings can be powerfully and positively transformative. Her name is Elise Keith. She is the founder and she is the meeting maven for Lucid Meetings. She's also the author of Where the Action Is, The Meetings That Make or Break Your Organization. She is an expert on how to have more effective meetings organizationally. What I would remind all of us who don't necessarily lead organizations or even maybe participate in meetings at work is that we all have meetings around the table. Sometimes that table is a boardroom. Sometimes we're all wearing suits. But other times the meeting is around a pop-up card table with friends or around whether or not to do the parking lot up at the synagogue, the church, uh, the place for kids, volunteer activities, all these places where we have meetings, and can we have them more effectively going forward? We believe the answer is yes, and Elise is here to show us the way. She leads research, publication, product management efforts, all of this while handling and leading her own family. She's got a lot to share, a lot to add, a lot to teach. You're going to love it. I recommend today that you view this one as a teaching lesson. So with that being said, it would be in your best interest and your organization's best interest if you buckled up, if you grabbed a journal, if you got ready to take some notes on how you're going to not only listen to her ideas and her story, but how you're going to apply them in your story, in your meetings, in your life. So, my friends, I want to introduce you to one of my friends. Her name is Elise Keith. Elise, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
2: Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: Elise, for our listeners who do not yet know about lucid meetings, they have not yet read the book where the action is. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing today.
2: So our mission at Lucid is to help teams run successful meetings every day. And we got on to that mission because when we found ourselves in our early work careers, we had opportunities to work on teams that solved great problems and made great progress and made it feel like a wonderful thing to show up to work every day. Mm-hmm. And we worked on teams where that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just a, the, the polite, short version of uh, the no matter how many wonderful habits I personally have, you know whether I do my miracle morning in the every day how or not. About that, a
0: shout out to Hal Elrod.
2: Yeah, hey Hal, that's that's wonderful. It's an hour in the morning, and then uh, you go to work.
0: Well, you do go um, to work, and we'll be talking about the meetings that are done well, those that are done poorly, and how we can choose intentionally between the two.
2: absolutely
0: before you got into this work i'm gonna back you way up you're taking this call today from one of my very favorite cities portland where'd you grow up though where was home for you as a little one
2: so i was born in eugene oregon which Uh is you know a hundred miles south and had the opportunity to move i don't know 15 times uh between being born and then settling here in portland But never more than, you know, a couple hundred miles up and down and around this valley.
0: So around north of the northwest United States. Who were some of the big influences for you growing up?
2: I have a large family that's all still here for the most part. And my parents split when I was young. So our biggest influences were um, the presence of grandparents and aunts and uncles and you know, other aunts and uncles, and, and all kinds of diversity that way. Lots of lots of different experiences from uh, different sides of the economic divide, different sides of the educational divide, mm-hmm. um, the whole political gamut. The whole thing was um, a full on catastrophe, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and really uh, important.
0: Well, when we think of meetings, I think most of us in our minds, we go right to the boardroom, right to the whiteboard, right to work. What I really enjoyed about your book and some of the work that you've done in your writings is you remind us that the first meetings did not take place in corporate America. That they took place around fire chats and around campsites and around dinner tables, and they've been taking place for millennia. So your, your first meetings weren't at Lucid. They were actually around your grandparents and around your parents and around this large family. Just r- remind us what those early meetings were like for you.
2: You know, every meeting is about walking into another room with another group of humans who aren't the same as you and hopefully having this moment to connect and create something great and You know, as a young child working in this uh, large family with interesting uncles, and all all of the dynamics, you you've learned that that room is about um, how do you treat people who you may or may not agree with with respect? How do you get curious about um, what's driving them, what makes them? tick, And how do you stay open and aware of the power and the politics and all of that, but also progressive so that you can enjoy each other's time? So
0: you're you're bringing up a pretty hot-button issue, whether you're doing life with a roommate, a spouse, a partner, or a team of 13 working on a critically important project with a deadline of next Friday. How do you treat people with love that you disagree with? And so as your experience as a little one in Eugene and then Portland and then 11 other cities, and then as you've advanced as a leader, as a listener, as a voice in this topic— how do we begin to treat people with love and respect and kindness that we
2: disagree with? It's really hard, right? It, it requires courage and it requires curiosity. You know, and if you can have the courage to understand who you are and where your convictions are, but also recognize that, that you don't know everything, right? And that if you were to look at other people as, as hopefully sane people, who, for some reason, came up with the conclusions that they did, then you can become kind of curious about well, interesting. How, does, how did they come to form that idea? What is going on there? And it becomes a little bit of a puzzle. Mm. There's an exercise I do in my workshops and when I speak, where um, we talk about with the audience, you know, what, remember back to a moment that you had uh, in a meeting that was a, play, a time where you felt valued where you felt connection and where you, where you know that that was a great meeting and you got something done. And then in the exercise, they, they think about this silently and then they turn to each other and they take turns sharing that moment with another person. And afterwards, the words that they say about what was in common? What did they hear in those stories that um, was the same? Even though they're both describing very, very different meetings, mm-hmm. are are beautiful. They're beautiful. I mean, they talk. The audience talks about connection. They talk about belonging and inspiration. So that's that's an exciting thing for me as a speaker because we get this room full of you know engineers or leaders talking about uh, meetings and inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> same thing. But the key to the exercise, and we don't talk about this much when we speak, but the key to the exercise is that when one person speaks, the other person is required to stay silent and do nothing. Hmm. And this moment where you actually get to say your say something that matters to you and another person receives it without judgment, without comment, is a pivotal sort of transformational act. You know, it's one of those things that we can do every day in every meeting where we just give people our attention.
1: Hmm.
2: And that's healing. It's It's a wonderful thing to do.
1: Well, I
0: would love to scale that concept because I think politically and with many of the other divides that we have right now as nations and as organizations and as families to listen with no attempt whatsoever to respond and to judge and critique and to inform the other how wrong they are would benefit not only our organizations but our lives. Yeah,
2: we're moving outside of the the business world a little bit, which is actually, I think, um, a wonderful thing because there are some organizations that do exactly that. So one of my passion projects is to work with these organizations and try and bring the techniques that they have developed into corporate America. Um, So, for example uh, civic dinners or the people supper. So they do, they do great work. They bring together a diverse group over food. Um, and they lead a facilitated conversation on hard issues and they do a lot of this same kind of thing. You know, we're going to be together as people sharing and we're going to talk and we're going to listen. And a lot of that work is done in communities and that's a powerful place to do it within the churches and whatnot. Um, I think there's an opportunity to take that work into the corporation where we still have some of the most concentrated densities of diversity because our communities are pretty fractured.
0: No doubt about it. We, you and I, are we, we make our living and we are living our passion in the meeting space. And yet I'm sure we both heard the expression death by meeting death by meetings. (laughs) It's a slow paper cut fade away, but it's death by meetings organizationally and individually. When did your passion to resurrect the meeting and to remind individuals and organizations of the value of a great meeting begin to take form within you? Like, when did did you recognize, man, we can do better?
2: You know, so I was, I started this journey in my um, late 20s, Early 30s, and I was working for a software company that helped international standards organizations organize their data online. It was a software company, and within our company, um, we could see that the way that these groups—so these are people who are meeting with with companies and consumers and governments from around the world—and they're deciding, you know, what does food safety look like, or how wide should roads be so that our tractor tires can fit on them? You know, all of these basic standards that make our economy go. And they made the decisions about what these standards would be in meetings. And so being the clever software entrepreneur that I am, I said, aha, we, we need to build some software that makes that transactional activity, these meetings, more efficient, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what I thought meetings were. I'm like, and, and you go and you look at all the advice and it's... Um, you know, meetings need to be shorter and you need to have an agenda and you mm-hmm. need to be organized. And it's all very much about the transaction of exchanging information in exchange for a result. Mm. I thought, OK, software, I can do that because software's good at transactional. And then I had an opportunity to go in and sit on one of the meetings for the National Policy Committee for the United States. And I walked into the room and I was a representative from my company. I was one of the youngest people in the room. I was one of the only women in the room.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I don't wear heels very often. I was wearing my big girl heels and I could couldn't walk straight real well. I was terrified, and I looked across the room, and I'm sitting next to a guy from Microsoft and a lady from the EPA, and across from me is this guy, and he swear he looks like Wolf Blitzer. He's got this huge <laughs> beard and a tie, and he's and he's from the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. and he writes standards for submarines, nuclear submarines, and he's glaring at me. I decided, I decided he was glaring at me, and as the meeting progressed. I'm in this room I'm just way over my depth. Mm -hmm. What I saw was that it was full of people. They got bored. One guy had called in on the phone and partway through the meeting, he fell asleep and he was snoring and he'd forgotten to mute, you know, And and the lady, one of the ladies couldn't get her way on a, on an issue and she started to whine. And it was just, it was, it was fascinating to sit in this room full of power and watch it devolve into people being people. And at the break, I was up, and I was like, okay, I'm going to get a cookie because I'm starting to lose it a little bit. And there was one cookie left, and the Wolf Blitzer Department of Defense guy (laughs) came up and glared at me. And he said, you know what, we better split it. Mm. (laughs) And at that moment, I was like, this isn't about just being transactional. This is about being successful with people. And from there, I started to look harder. And I started to see what people in successful organizations, the, inspira- the inspirational organizations where people go to work and they come out better people at the end of the day, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And I found an amazing body of meeting practice there.
0: You wrote an entire book on it. We're going to begin unpacking that together. One of the things that somewhat surprised me is you wrote in there, most meeting problems aren't really meeting problems. They are, the problems aren't really about the meetings themselves. Talk about that.
2: The meeting itself is often a reflection of our, our lack of clarity, our lack of certainty, our fear, um, our inability to understand or navigate successfully through complexity. Um, it's about our, our need to try and work together to make decisions when we're not sure how to make decisions. In essence, um, bad meetings are always a reflection of something deeper going on in the culture. Mm-hmm. Right? They're always a reflection of the culture. Um, happily, however, when you try and uh, talk to somebody about like, they're like, Oh, we've got a culture problem and we've got to fix our culture. It's all a culture problem. It's like, what do you do with that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how, do you, how do you show up one day and fix a culture problem? That's uh, that's not really an accessible place to start. However, when you go in and you start to fix meetings, that's very, very doable. It's a very practical, implementable thing to do. And it, immediately has an impact on that so-called culture problem. Because in essence, our culture is, in fact, what we do. It's the Correct. way in which we get things done. So,
0: And what better place uh, to showcase that and to begin fixing that than in the meetings where the work ought to be getting done in the first place?
2: Absolutely. So you know, if you're talking about um, cultural challenges with um, clear authority or decision-making and sharing of power, Right. Mm. Um, The way in which people are invited to lead a meeting, who gets to speak and when, you know, how you make clear what decisions are being made and who's involved in making them. That's a way to share that power. That's a way to make that egalitarian. Right. Correct. And that happens in your meetings.
0: It seems to me many, many, many meetings are led top down with one trumpeteer making an awful lot of noise
1: <laughs> and then a few
0: percussionists around the table agreeing. Whether they do or not internally, they're nodding their heads and agreeing. So how do we begin pivoting from the way things have been done in the past, whether that's in our organization or uh, just generally meetings themselves, into making these moments in time to come together, to connect, to have profoundly important time together.
2: So I think part of that journey has to do with like speaking to the things that um, people believe they need to care about deeply, um, which are, which are the business things, you know, the transactional hard metrics. So many leaders are leading bad meetings um, because that's what they saw the leaders before them doing. And, you know, there's data to back this up, which basically says, you know while our leaders may be spending up to seventy eighty percent of their work week in meetings, mm. fewer than twenty five percent of them have any training whatsoever on how to do that right so essentially, we have uh, vast swaths of our working population that is doing a job they weren't trained to do <laughs> so, sounds, like a, sounds like a pretty so, significant problem It's an incredibly expensive problem and it's wasteful right like how what other parts of our production system do we? Allow 30 to 50% of the effort we put into that system to be wasted, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's wasteful. But you can start a change by both helping people understand that there are other models, that it is, in fact, a solvable problem, and then looking at some of the ways that high performing organizations are successfully meeting and using those meetings to drive uh, progress toward their goals. And it's really, you know, in that case, storytelling. And then picking up something from another organization and starting there. At Cisco, they are doing a massive piece of work right now to improve employee engagement. And the reason they're improving employee engagement is that drives performance, right? That's a direct Mm -hmm. tie to top-line business results. But the mechanism that they're trying is they're looking at their teams, and they found that if team leaders and team members check in with each other at least once a week in a positive way, their performance goes up. Hmm. Now, when you look at the research data, they're always talking about things like frequency of attention or positive relational interactions, or it's about behavioral psychology and rewarding what you want to see and mm-hmm. neurologically triggering the dopamines and, you know, all of this stuff.
0: All above my pay grade, but yes, I'm, I'm nodding. Uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> but when you feel it away... What they're finding is that it's frequency of care.
0: Yeah. It kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier that we think it's transactional. Come in with the bullets, come in with the agenda, check the boxes, and then walk out, get the work done. And yet you're saying, "Uh, that might be a piece of it, but it's not the core of it.
2: The core of it is frequency of care. How often do I care about what you're working on? How often do we say thank you? How often do we sit as a group in a room and recognize people for doing something that brings meaning and value to us together. That's, that's the key. It's frequency of care.
0: You break down your book into four big parts, four big sections. And the first one, and I love the title, Breaking the Doom Loop. And what we all know to be true, I would imagine, listening to this show today, is many of us walk into meetings expecting to walk out an hour later disappointed. 30 minutes late, no. disappointed. Three days after conference, after being away from home, away from the kids, away from work. We expect on the front side to be disappointed when we leave. And so you call us back to this truth. No, listen, the very first step in succeeding is to break the doom loop. So what is the doom loop?
1: So the doom
2: loop is this, um, it's this fabulous thing that once you know it, you can see how it applies to all parts of your life. It's called the belief cycle. The belief cycle says that, okay, I have start with a belief. And then based on what I believe, that informs my actions, what I do. And then based on what I do, other people are going to react to that and form their own belief. And then they're going to do something based out of their own belief, right? So in a doom loop, um, I believe meetings are a waste of time. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, I'm I'm not a throw good money after bad kind of person. I'm not going to put a lot of extra effort into these waste of time meetings. I'm going to show up and do it if I have to. (laughs) Well... If you just show up and do it like if you have to, that's not contributing in a way that's gonna get you a good result. Everybody else sees that, you know, you don't need to prep whatever. Hmm. So they don't prep whatever. And you have a lousy meeting. It's a it's a self fulfilling cycle. So the way you break that is you start with a different belief. You know, you can't get a positive result starting with a negative belief. And
0: by the way, I'm always encouraging our listeners to write as they listen to take notes. And that one might be worth writing down. I'd like you to say it again one more time. Uh, like you are on top of a stance, making a, a point that has to be heard.
2: <laughs> you can't get a positive result when you start with a negative belief.
0: Huge, so help us, uh, help us pivot.
2: So in the meeting space, each and every one of those is an opportunity To bring people together and achieve something that you can't achieve on your own. It's an opportunity to solve a problem. It's an opportunity to inspire. It's an opportunity to unlock more potential, more benefit, more forward momentum than you had otherwise. So the key walking into that room is to understand what you're trying to unlock and design for that.
0: This is true whether we are having supper together as a family or talking about how to pave the parking lot up at the place where we worship or go to school or how to get a important project out the door rapidly.
1: So you, you start
0: with the why. You start with hey, what are we really trying to do here? How do you get clear even on that?
2: So I think the, the easiest way to get clear on that – so we did some research because that was actually a really hard problem. It turns out it's a lot harder to be clear about what you're doing than you thought it would be. <laughs> right. Um, Yeah, shockers. So we did a bunch of research, and what we found is there are essentially 16 types of different meetings. And so there you've got a starting spot, right? Like, well, I'm walking into a room. What what are meetings good for? Well, it's good for one of these 16 things. Once you know which of the things you're trying to achieve, then you can grab basically cheat sheets, playlists on how to run each one of those conversations to get to the result. Mm. So some meetings are really good for learning right? Like, okay, we've done something. What did we learn from that? How can we improve going forward? That's a, a great, if you're into innovation, some are really good for trying to make sense of a difficult conversation. Um, some are good for, you know, making sure that the, the committee knows what kind of food you're going to have for your next week's potluck. I mean, there are <laughs> different, right. different kinds of conversations and, and ways to run them for each of those sorts of things.
0: At least, how would you empower someone who feels like their voice is somehow undeserving, like they don't feel as if they can contribute, or, or maybe they just don't feel like they've been heard? How do you empower the people around that table to be bold and courageous and curious and step forward and raise their voice and their ideas?
2: I mean, ideally, you have a leader who's in a place where they want to do that. One of the Uh, most powerful uh, things you can do in a meeting setting is to use silence. The strategic use of silence is uh, a huge welcoming open door for all kinds of interaction where people otherwise felt that they were unwanted or unnecessary. So let's, let's take a quick example. Let's say I have a new proposal on the table that we're looking at our mission statement or we're trying to decide when to do the next fundraiser. And I ask the group for feedback. Now, one way you can do it is you can say, hey, does anybody have any feedback? And then you can roll past it, mm-hmm. which is what most people do. The other way you can do it is you can say, OK, let's let's talk about what's good in this and what's bad. And I really care about hearing all of your opinions. And I know we are not going to agree. So what I want you to do is I want you to take. 30 seconds and just jot down your thoughts on a piece of paper or a sticky note Mm -hmm. and then you have people turn to another friend somebody sitting next to them and say i want you to share your thoughts with your partner and then from the partner groups you have them talk out so what does that do well it tells them not only do i want your thoughts i'm i want your thoughts so much that i'm giving you a moment you know we are all taking a moment to actually have thoughts (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> We're mm-hmm. making
2: space for that to happen. And then you are going to ensure that every single one of those people is heard by at least one other person. Because while some people um, feel their voice isn't wanted for power reasons, other people are, are just reluctant. Mm-hmm. that they, they feel their voice isn't wanted for reasons that are inside their own heads. And this gives them a chance to experiment being safe and, and saying what they need to say without having to expose their, that risk in front of that whole group. So it's a simple technique. It's really, really effective, very powerful way to start that progress. But, but really, creating safety is something you do day in and day out through habit. We run our meetings in a way where everybody speaks.
0: At least some of the uh, listeners, I'm sure right now, have just crossed their arms. and They're getting ready to grab, grab the volume switch, turning to the left, unfortunately, because they're thinking, I don't have time for this. We have a million things going on and two million things to get out the door. And I'm, Whether I'm a nurse at a nursing station making the handoff or we're getting the project out the door, we don't have time to invest this, what you're calling critical time, to allow everybody to turn to neighbors and share with a friend and have their voice heard and to be listened to. How, how do you respond to that?
2: I think they need to go back and do the math. Because that exercise that I just talked about, uh, you do, you'd say a question, you give people 30 seconds to write on their own, you give them two minutes to talk to a partner, and then you take four minutes for everybody to speak out. So in that phrase, your feedback session, which otherwise is a big ramble where one guy talks for six minutes and everybody else gets bored, <laughs> has become that same six minutes. And everybody's spoken. Mm. So you do your math um, and and look at it again. And the number of people who will say, oh, we don't have time to you know sit back and design our meetings. We don't have time to get any training on this. They are the classic example of someone who um, is far too busy doing things wrong, but they have no problem doing them nine times a day.
0: That is awesome. That one might be worth writing down, too. Far too busy doing things wrong. And they do it nine times a day.
2: Yeah, it's just crazy talk. I mean, the, the organizations that have effective meeting practices and they they invest in training and they invest in design meet less. They meet a lot less than all of the organizations that meet without design.
0: You write voraciously. You got a lot of writings out there and uh, around a whole litany of various topics, not just meetings, but leadership, communicating, life. Uh, one of the Inc. magazine articles that I came across was on loneliness, of all things, loneliness. And uh-huh. I think all of us, all of us, 50% of us are lonely ourselves, which means if you turn to the left or right, uh, there he is, there she is. It's all around us. You brought up a concept called Vertelis Coasters. Yeah. What is Vertelis Coasters and and how can that help us as leaders and as listeners grow forward?
2: Vertelis is a company that does questions for introspection and questions for connection. And there were a couple of other companies on that, that same article. And essentially what they're doing is they're giving you a card or a coaster with a provocative question on it that gives you, um, basically permission to have a meaningful conversation. So you might pick one up and it might say something like, um, what is, what is a hope you have for your future? You know, some big lofty, important thing, or, um, you know, what's something you've always feared, but you'd love to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And that conversation, um, can unlock all of the things that that actually connect us and that make you know while I might be sitting next to the guy, and whatever your tribal division is, if it's you know politics or even um, you know engineering versus marketing, mm-hmm. right like we've we've all got our our tribal divisions, you know, the church elders versus the newbies, you know they're they're all there. Yes. Um, and those questions unlock things where we can see past some of that into the shared humanity. Icebreakers like that are are a wonderful tool, and using cards like that makes it less awkward to break them out.
0: So in our office, we meet every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m., and it begins with us walking around the room sharing the answer to the mission moment. For us, that means what's one experience from the previous seven days when you saw the mission of Live Inspired lived out here? So maybe it's the way that you received an email, you heard someone else take a phone call, you, you... receive something on social media, whatever it might be, but it celebrates the individual work as it ties to mission of individuals around that table. It's a really cool way for us to remind ourselves what we're doing here is about bigger than making phone calls or shipping packages. So that, that's that been very helpful. And, and then secondly, tied to that, there's always a playful question. So a uh, favorite vacation as a kid, what's the one song when it comes out, you got to sing. You just can't help yourself. Whether you're in the shower or you're in the car, whatever, you got to sing it. So in in addition to those two kind of open-ended ways to begin a meeting, what's another really effective way for us to consider opening meetings in our families, in our offices, in our places of worship?
2: You know, so actually uh, a really traditional one that we're finding working its way into the business world is that moment of uh, silent reflection, right? So uh, traditionally it's been the prayer or the way that the Quakers begin services where they sit in silence and they wait for the presence of God. Um, We see now teams within the military and the finance sector and the business sector beginning their meetings with three to five minutes of silent meditation, which it turns out to be incredibly powerful way to actually get people out of their heads and all of the, oh, I'm right in the middle of the project and, you know, my kids are calling and all of the craziness that is their real life to settle, focus, clear, and actually be present for the conversation. So that's a really cool technique. Mm-hmm. Another one is groups that start with sharing of something. So like you you talked about sharing a mission moment. Um, mm-hmm. Starbucks shares shares a coffee tasting. <laughs> so, you know, how on mission is that? <laughs> they're Starbucks. And then while they're talking about coffee, they get to explore their product. They get to explore their relationships with the other. And they're doing something very ancient, which is they're sharing food, <laughs> right? They're they're expressing care for each other. Those are all wonderful ways to take a moment. Lululemon, they start meetings by asking, they do a clearing. So is there anything on your head that... You want to get out so you can be present. And then they do something where they they do the vibes watcher moment. Hmm. And they say, you know, is there anything going on in your life or in our business that you think we need to really be aware of? And sometimes things come up because life is what it is. And that becomes what their meeting is about. So not only is it a a way to get the things out, but it's also a way to, to recognize that sometimes we need to take time for things that aren't on our agenda.
0: Well, speaking of things that are not always on our agenda, frequently a voice that is domineering is not often on our agenda. In just about any meeting, if there's more than two individuals in a room, and sometimes if there are only two, there is a high likelihood that someone's going to dominate this baby all the way forward, man, all the way back. How do you, if you are seated in that room or standing next to that individual, appropriately and humbly and assertively without igniting the situation and inciting violence and anger, (laughs) quietly diffuse it and pivot into a more inclusive meeting?
2: The first step is really to turn to people who haven't spoken and ask them to take the floor.
0: What if it's the boss, the leader, the rabbi, the pastor, the president, the sales guy, the person in charge, the physician I'm making the handoff to that just keeps going? So um, how do you empower those individuals around that leader to make the handoff?
2: So so the more powerful way beyond the beyond the just asking someone else to take the floor, which, you know, in that case, if you've got the leader who is also the facilitator and also the agenda creator and also the note taker, you're in you're in a doom loop situation. Right. That's a that's an awful that's an awful situation. So you have to break that loop. Um, And that starts by creating a new belief. And one of the belief you've got to create is the one inside the leader that says, hey, guess what? I ought to share (laughs) And this is actually hurting my team and hurting my cause, which is a conversation you have privately. One of my favorite um, trainers on this talked about how that happened for him. He was working with uh, a senior leader and he was an engineer and he'd go into the room and he'd either not speak at all because he didn't feel like he should be there or he'd dominate. And his mentor pointed this out to him and said, look, this is not why we hired you. You have to be here to contribute, but you also have to be here to listen and work with these people. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're fired. So it was really clear. It was like appropriately communicate in meetings or we're, we're gone. This is, this is done. <laughs> and then the way they enacted that is they set up a code. So they would get into a meeting, and if the mentor saw that this individual wasn't, wasn't shaping up, he just lifted a finger, you know, subtly on the table where he could see it. And he began to be able to be able to self-monitor and change his behavior. So that's how you work with a leader. But then in teams, you know, the best thing to do is to talk about it and create some agreements. You know, I've talked with teams and they have, um, one team has a role called Norm the Enforcer. <laughs> <laughs> and Norm's got permission to interrupt anybody at any point <laughs> for a violation of the rules. And that's just one of the, the jobs they do in their meeting. Um, another group uses the um the Elmo card. They have cards that say Elmo on them and they are given permission to raise them and it, Elmo stands for enough, let's move on. Yes. <laughs> so, um and another group just shouts squirrel. <laughs> which I think is great. I think it's my favorite. <laughs>
0: I think that group uh, are known as my four kids. So they <laughs> they don't use that word frequently, but they are shouting and living into it repeatedly.
1: So in, in
0: addition to being CEO of Lucid Meetings, where individuals can learn a lot more about the work that you're doing, and I encourage folks to check out the book, Where the Action Is, The Meetings That Make or Break Your Organization. When our friends who are listening to this episode step back into their day, back into their family, back into their school, back into their offices, back into their life. Give us three practical things. I know you've already layered on a bunch, but give us three practical things to say, John, here's where I would start to have even better meetings going forward.
2: So the first thing I would do is I would, I would take a moment before every meeting and see if you can get really clear on the purpose and the outcomes. Why do I think this meeting is happening and what is it meant to achieve? So that's one before you even walk in the room, create that vision for yourself.
0: And is that for me, the leader, or is that for our entire team, all 11, uh, all two of us? I are... think
2: all of you need to do it. Okay. I think, every, I think uh, meetings are a team sport, yep. right? So I, I actually think leaders should not be leading, their, leading the meetings in their teams as often as they are. Likewise. I think that, yeah, I think, that's just, I think that's a mistake.
0: We call it co-mingled uh, leadership, and the idea is every time the baton is passed. It's so uh, we, ought to, we ought to be doing this aspect of life together.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And in the best teams they do, they have defined roles and they rotate them. It's um, not only does it create uh, shared ownership, but it's a great way to nurture leadership skills in your whole team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for those uh, leaders who are like, oh, my team won't engage and they're, they're off multitasking. Well, give them a job to do. <laughs> <laughs> you put them to work. They're not there to check their email. They're there to do a job. Give them one, mm-hmm. you know, right. So so everybody should understand what the purpose and outcomes are. And if you're not the leader, it's a great opportunity to be able to come into the room and ask the question, right? Why are we, uh, help me understand why we're here and what we, we are meant to get out of it so I can participate best.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, if you're the leader, you can, you walk into the room and you say, we're here to do this and this is what we're going to get. Mm-hmm. So, I, so purpose and outcomes, number one. Um, number two, connect with each other as people first. We've talked about icebreakers. We've talked about um, moments of recognition. We've talked about all of that. There are – it seems like a waste of time. It is not. The way that our brains work, we need that moment to transition from uh, one place to the other before we can be productive. There's Mm -hmm. a, a tribe in South America that talks about it. Um, giving a moment for the soul to arrive, hmm. which is a beautiful way to describe what's actually happening neurochemically <laughs> way down in our brains. So connect first. And then third.
0: And let me just before you share the third,
2: that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Because the reality is we are walking out of the busyness, the fires of life into the next meeting, whether that's around a dining room table or up at school or the boardroom. And to allow the soul to catch up and to breathe for
2: a moment,
0: a moment, that matters. So I, I love one and two. What's number three?
2: Before you leave, three to five minutes at the end, you're going to close the meeting properly. And an effective close works like this. First of all, you, you stop and you say, okay, let's make sure we're very clear on what decisions we made. And you put them in writing where everybody can see them. Or you say them out loud and have everybody say, yes, indeed, that's the decision we made. Let's be sure we're clear on what promises we've made. I do this at the dinner table with my kids. You know, okay, Colin, you're going to load the dishwasher. <laughs> Maggie, you're Squirrel, clear on the Mom. table. <laughs> right, all the things, but they do, right? right. You, you, get, you get clear on your promises because all of those action items or to-dos or tasks or whatever you call them, those are promises we've made to each other. Right. That's that's the root of our opportunity to create trust. So let's be clear that we understand what we promised. (laughs) We can back it up. Um, And then finally, most importantly, you say thank you. Mm. You know, you say, okay, great. I want to take a moment to say thank everybody. And especially I want to appreciate John for asking such great questions. You've made this a really fun time. I wouldn't have had this opportunity to talk about meaning in meetings when I when I do a money podcast.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're not doing a money podcast. You're doing, doing the Live Inspired podcast. And we sometimes want to make some money in the work that we do, but we definitely want to do life well with one another. And I think in doing life well and in doing meetings well, you will make more money. But more Absolutely. than that, you're going to make more of a difference. So this has been a blast. And at the end of every episode, Elise, we ask our guests seven questions. that They, they right. tether you to I just think giants, these great men and women who've come before you. So the first question is, what is the best book you have ever read?
2: Well, I think the most important book for me was I read um, Don Miguel's Four Agreements mm. at a time when I needed it.
0: The teacher appears when the student's ready. Yeah, And I I read that book at a time I did not need it, then read it again at a time that I did. And it's a beautiful book. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, give us a one-sentence synopsis of The Four
2: Agreements. The Four Agreements um, helps you see how to be okay with yourself in the face of people who aren't always okay with you.
0: (laughs) Well said. So uh, as you now are okay with yourself, Elise, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today.
2: I would love to be able to just sit still and like look at grass, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, or, or clouds or something like just sit and not be fretting about everything I need to do. That would be brilliant. Uh, likewise,
0: if your home caught fire and your family and your animals are all outside safe and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, What's the one item you would run in and grab?
2: Well, probably, honestly, my laptop. Right. Um, But I would like to have said that the box of my kids' precious school (laughs) pics would have have been it.
0: (laughs) Maybe your laptop in your right (laughs) and the box in your left.
2: That's right, exactly. What's the best
0: advice you've ever received?
2: Eat all the chocolate. (laughs) Eat eat the
1: chocolate.
2: (laughs) I have a number of friends who for a variety of reasons, can't eat the chocolate anymore. And it's just an insult not to enjoy chocolate when you can.
0: Uh, and I think there's deeper meaning there than just chocolate. Uh, it might be looking out the <laughs> window, watching grass grow. So that that Absolutely. might be your chocolate today. Mm-hmm. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone living or dead, who would you love to have that conversation with?
2: I would love to talk to my great great-grandfather, James Patrick Aldridge. He's um, he's kind of a family legend, and there are all of these really wild stories about him. And I would love to hear those come straight from the source mm. to see what actually is going on there.
0: What would you tell your
2: 20-year-old self? Uh, I would tell her to just do the work. Some of it's dumb, and, and you don't think you ought to have to do some of those things, but you do. So mm. just do the work and save yourself some years of frustration and learn how to how to get through the grind so you can get to the to the good stuff.
0: Well, Elise Keith, as we talk about the good stuff, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
2: Well, that was fun.
0: That's it. <laughs> that is so awesome. Uh, so on the tombstone of Elise Keith, she lies here, well, that was fun. Yep. Yeah. My friends, uh, not only was life fun for her, but this conversation, at least, was fun for me and I think for us. When you share your heart and your mind and your work in the ways that you do, what's the one thing that you hope people receive because they hear this podcast, because they read your book, because they reach out to you organizationally? What's one thing they hope they do better?
2: I hope that they see that there is an opportunity to connect and belong with the people around them, and that it's it's not magic. it's it's very much something that you can go and you can find a resource and you can follow steps. and while it seems trite, you're following steps and you're and you're there. Mm. right? That's the way to to make that thing that you think you want and that you know you need inside there happen.
0: Well, my friends, that is Elise Keith. She reminds us a lot about the value of meetings, the value of connecting, the value of being open, the value of being childlike in the way you learn and listen and remain curious. She also reminds us that you can't get a positive result with a negative belief system. I want to thank you all for tuning in this time. And until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. My friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspire podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.